Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I am honored to have you along for the ride as we finally, at long last, conclude our extended look back at the year in music that was 1983. Before we get the proceedings officially underway, let me remind you, once we're done taking a look back at the most significant new music releases from November and December of that year, I will continue on and take an extended look at the least significant new music releases from November, December 1983. A previously successful pop band releases what is called one of the great career sabotage albums of all time. Patti LaBelle releases a song that provides a sample that is central to a number one hit for 10, count them, 10 weeks. Over 20 years later, Barbara Streisand wins a Golden Globe. After all these years of seeing them in secondhand record stores, I finally get to hear what Alien Sex Fiend sounds like. Also, what legendary punk band you definitely know you might even love does a little career sabotage of their own, taking a stylistic detour and releasing an album that starts off like this. Who could it be? Who could it be? There is only... Well, there's two ways to find out. You could Google it. The other way to find out, the more fun way to find out, is by getting a seven-day free trial at my Patreon and hearing the best of the rest of November, December 1983 and all the rest of the crap I got there, too, at Patreon dot com slash Mike Tully. It's not Van Halen. Kind of sounds like it, though. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. I'll see you here, and then I'll see you there. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from a podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. And yes, it is finally time at long last. I will be wrapping up our look back at the music year that was 1983 and to expedite that process this time around we will be blasting through all the new and noteworthy stuff that came out in both november and december of that year reason being the 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 big artists would have all cranked out their new albums in plenty with plenty of lead time for kids to become aware of them You, you put out the single you put out the video the kids are like oh my god mom and dad if i don't have the new billy idol album i'm gonna die and everybody's gonna hate me and i'll also be dead and so the, 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 they had to get those albums out by, like, I guess Thanksgiving or so in order for them to, to milk the full worth out of it being a holiday fourth quarter release. And as a result, not a lot, of, not a lot happens in December, except at least in 1983 in the metal world. I guess there weren't the presumption in, in, in the metal scene and the metal labels is not a ton of kids were going to be asking for uh, the debut album from Slayer, for example, for Christmas, so hey, you know, I mean, all the let let all the big dogs fight it out in October and uh, November, and maybe they'll put us in the window of your local record store. We're the only game in town. Come December, there's a couple of pieces of uh, music world news that I want to share with you folks uh, from November and December '83. Before we get into all of the music, probably, definitely, most notably in uh, somewhere in November. 
Michael Jackson releases the music video for Thriller, which is 14 minutes long. It's a mini movie. You know, he obviously saw the potential of music videos um, just as, as other artists were, were barely grasping the potential. He saw the full scope of what a music video could be. And then, I mean, 14 minutes, actually, to me, I was surprised that it wasn't longer than that because I recall, you may recall, there was the home video release of the making of as well. So I remember watching Thriller being, um, I don't know how long that was, like at least a half hour long um, experience. That really was, you, you just can't match that nowadays. When Has there ever been a single that was more of an event ever? Like, I, I mean, tell you tell me what I'm probably forgetting something here. And then Michael Jackson just kind of kept trying to match that. Remember when he did the music video for black and white and it was it, they debuted that. Was it like during the Super Bowl halftime just after the Super Bowl? And it was like he's got Slash from Guns N' Roses and he's got the kid from Home Alone. And for some crazy reason, he's got Norm from Cheers and Cheers hasn't even been on the air for a couple years. And he's got that. That face-changing technology, remember, they were like morphing from um, uh, one ethnicity's face to another. It's all, we're all one big happy Benetton family here at the end of it. And still, black and white, I don't think, made 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 a quarter of the impression on the culture that Thriller did. That that may be the pinnacle of um, event singles in, in November of, uh, of 83. Much further down the scale in terms of the cultural impact it made at the time, the band Fish, P.H. Fish, performed their first show, um, obviously uh, unbeknownst at the time, uh, providing a future boon to Whip It and Grilled Cheese entrepreneurs. Also, on Christmas 1983, we've all given some bad Christmas gifts in our day, some Christmas gifts that we wish we could take back, but none could be as regrettable as um, the gift Marvin Gaye gave his father a Smith & Wesson 38 Special pistol. Marvin Gaye gave it to his dad so that his dad would have a means of self-defense, as you likely know. It was only a few months later that Marvin Gaye Sr. turned that very gun, that Christmas... Pr talk about looking a gift horse in the mouth turned that gun on his son, fatally killing uh, soul Motown legend Marvin Gaye. In happier news, let's talk about the significant new music from uh, mostly November. There is quite a bit of it, beginning with Billy Idol, who released his second album. He'd had you know massive mainstream success with the first, and he was able to capitalize that and perpetuate that with the album Rebel Yell, which had um, the, the, the title track, obviously, was a big single, Flesh for Fantasy, and then... Um, a song, it's an interesting backstory. Billy Idol, not surprisingly, was a big fan of horror movies. And there's this 1960s French horror movie, and it's called... Now, my French is not perfect, but I'm pretty sure my French is better than that of Billy Idol or his girlfriend at the time. The movie is called Les Yeux Sans Visage. And I believe I said that correctly. Thank you very much to my high school French teacher, Mr. Rapisarda. That translates to eyes without a face, right? 
So he comes up with the idea for the lyrics and guitar player, bandmate, co-writer Steve Stevens comes up with the chord progression and they got the song and Billy Idol's going to rap on it a little. Remember, it's got that like talky, rappy thing in it. Billy Idol's living in New York at the time. Rip, uh, hip-hop is happening um, in the underground across the entire city. He said it was inevitable. It was going to seep into what he was doing. But the little twist, the flair for the, for the, that really makes the chorus pop is there's that female backing vocal right and that backing vocal was performed by billy idol's uh girlfriend at the time but as i say neither billy idol nor the girlfriend actually spoke french so she did not sing les yeux sans visage she sang less use sans visage like in classic i'll have the soup doger and the escargots fashion and that's what she's saying as a kid i think i vaguely thought she was saying like pressure's always on no it's less use sans visage whatever the hell she was saying it worked and it was a great big hit song here's another fun piece of trivia obviously he made a music video for the song and Billy Idol spent three days filming the video for reasons that aren't clear to me in Arizona on an especially hot soundstage. And then there's the lights and there's the smoke machines. It was very, very hot. It was very, very dry. And upon leaving to go perform some tour dates, Billy Idol realized that his his contacts had become essentially fused to his eyeballs. And he had to go in and have a procedure to get the the contacts removed and then his his retinas or whatever start to, to fix themselves. But for three days, his eyes were all bandaged up, which is to say in making the music video for Eyes Without a Face, Billy Idol ended up with a face without eyes. Like Billy Idol, Duran Duran were able to extend their success through another album cycle with the album. Their third album, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. The lead singer and lyricist Simon LeBon described the album as, quote, an adventure story about a little commando team, Ragged Tiger being their code phrase for success in their mission of course the the subtleties of this little concept album that simon lebon had uh, in his mind running through the the body of the album no doubt fully evident to duran duran seven and eight year old fans at the time they had a couple of um mildly successful singles the union and the snake probably being the most prominent of those and then massive worldwide smash success number one song i believe here in the states with a song from the album that received a critical remix. Niall Rogers of the band Chic had reinvented himself as a go-to hit-making producer, uh, I guess the year earlier or so, for the album Let's Dance that he made with David Bowie. So Duran Duran kind of stylistically following a poor man's poppier boy band MTV-friendly version of David Bowie, I suppose. At least that's how you'd see him in the pop sphere. 
went to Nile Rodgers. He remixed the reflex and it was a gigantic hit. And uh, that, that pretty much became their formula for the rest of the, the successful songs that they had notorious and wild boys. If you think about those songs, the reflex wild boys, notorious, very, very similar sounding songs that are similar, but different to the earlier uh, Duran Duran singles, like Rio and you know, the early Duran Duran stuff. That is the Nile Rogers effect in full effect here on this number one song off seven and the ragged tiger. In November of 83, we find ourselves in the era of peak Pointer Sisters. You would pretty much never see a story like this nowadays in the pop world. But at this point, the Pointer Sisters have had limited um, sporadic success for uh, the better part of a decade, maybe for an entire decade. In November of 83, they release their 10th studio album and this is finally the gigantic breakout this ends up selling three or four million copies and most of the song when you think of the pointer sisters whatever song it is that comes to mind it is almost definitely from their album breakout i've mentioned this before but uh, the youngest pointer sister june pointer wrote a a really eye-opening memoir they the, the pointer sisters just had such a squeaky clean image at the time it's so shocking to find out i guess it shouldn't be surprising to find out that anybody who was you know in the the the, the in the limelight in their early 80s had a massive cocaine problem but i just didn't I just did pointer sisters isn't what comes to mind when I when I picture eighties cocaine depra- depravity and yet um, June Pointer was more than happy to share tales of of great depravity in the recording studio on the set of the Love Boat. Suffice it to say, when they were singing, I'm so excited. I'm pretty sure I know why at least one of them was so excited. Um, you know, they, they came up as a basically a soul group and at this point it was sort of play the 80s game play the mtv game or go home and again i can't recommend this book enough june by her own admission said that when the the writers the producers brought them songs like the neutron dance the pointer sisters were like the hell is the neutron dance and the answer was basically do you want to hit or not they did want to hit and it was a hit and it worked but probably the signature song off of the album breakout was this one right here So as I said, Breakout was the 10th studio album for the Pointer Sisters. Meanwhile, longstanding prog rock act, Yes, released their 11th album. And at this point, they were also fully engaged in playing the game of making 80s style music for what 80s 
pop audiences demanded. And uh, as with the Pointer Sisters, playing the game worked out very well. For Yes, on their 11th album, 90125, they released their biggest hit ever. In January of 1983, Eurythmics released their second album entitled Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, and it took four singles to have a a really big hit, at least here in the States. But it was the fourth single, the title track, that really broke them. As a result, their follow-up album, which was made in pretty rapid succession, came out in the same year, on November 14th of 83. They had their first UK number one their first U.S. top 10, and an album. Rolling Stone loves making lists. There's nothing Rolling Stone... I mean, the only thing Rolling Stone likes more than trying to convince you that the new Bob Dylan album is even more genius than the last one is making a list of the greatest lists of all time. Well, at some point in time when Rolling Stone was compiling or recompiling or re-editing the 500 greatest albums of all time, Touch by Eurythmics, the one that came out in November of 83, ranked as the... 500, uh, 500th greatest album of all time when Rolling Stone ran that list back about nine years later. Somehow it had crept up eight spots. So here you go. In the estimation of um, Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone and people who want to remain in the good graces of Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone, a sample of the 492nd greatest album of all time. So- have a bizarre anecdote, a personal anecdote to share about the next noteworthy new release from November of 83. You know, you have these memories from, from distant early childhood and they're so strange and they would have happened when you were so little that you're not entirely sure if it was a thing that happened or something that like you dreamt and somehow that file like the dream the memory of that dream got misfiled in your brain alongside stuff that actually happened when you were awake so here's what i remember my dad was at work and my mom had to go to a bank but couldn't go to the regular bank that we went to in town so me and my mom and my sister drove to some you know it seemed like we were driving very far away we probably drove about eight minutes and about three towns over my mom stopped at this bank and there was, out on the street, there was a Santa Claus. And in my in my memory, it was nowhere near Christmas. And yet there was a man dressed as Santa Claus. And I would have been six years old. I knew damn well, I think I believed that there was a Santa Claus. But I knew damn well this wasn't the Santa Claus. But this guy was soliciting donations for something. You know, Salvation Army makes the most sense, right? But unlike 
most donations, so unlike most street corner muddy grubbing Santas, this guy was offering something in return. He said, if you give me some money, I will give you a, a record album. And he had like a stack of albums that were uh, albums that would have been like on the discount rack, you know, rag albums that 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 flopped. The kind of things we'll probably be talking about on the best of the rest, the B-side show at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. And I don't recall if he let us choose one. I don't think he did. I think he paid he had like a little stack of four or five records. And my mom, for whatever reason, gave him some money. And he gave us an album. And we were all excited because in these days we did not. I mean, we probably owned three albums. And whoop-de-damn, dude, now we got four. What do we got, mom? What do we got? And my mom didn't say anything until we got back to the car. And then she looked at it. And I don't know if it was then or if she waited until she got home to discuss it with my dad. But she was very reluctant to let us listen to this album that this street corner money grubbing Santa had given her and us because she was afraid it may have been some of this satanic music that you were now hearing about. Remember, this is exactly the moment of this is prime satanic panic, Tipper Gore, PMRC, D. Snyder with his filed down fangs making fools out of our nation's elected officials. But there was a real concern. And, and I was I was still little. I was like six because we had never heard of the band, but the album was called under the blood red sky and i don't know who got in my mom's ear and was like um trish they're called you too it's okay so anyway i don't know if we ever listened to it but we definitely owned this album it was this weird little between album live release that uh, i gather made a bit of a dent and established that you two unlike a lot of their um synth pop contemporaries that were coming they were not a synth pop band but the in case people were inclined to lump them in with all the other synth pop bands that were coming out of the uk the duran durans is of the world that these guys were actually a proper rock band and a proper live force and i went back and i listened to some of this this morning and one thing that really struck me was that, uh, at least in parts, Bono still sounds Irish on these live versions recorded here in the States at Red Rocks. And now we have come to the point in the show, folks, where I ask you just how 80s do you like your 80s music to be? When I saw the next song I'm about to share with you was released in November of 83, I was tempted to lead the whole show with it because for better and for worse, I think most would say mostly for worse, it's hard to think of uh, of a song that just listening to a second of it epitomizes all the the grandiose 80s-ness of 80s music, then this track is, uh, this album won the artist uh, a nomination for Best New Artist at, at Grammy. Uh, the Grammys may have actually won, who cares? Um, Canada gave this artist to the world. Um, 
Canada did this to the world. Whatever you think of this track, it was most definitely a thing. It was a top 10 hit. I am speaking of the signature hit off the debut album, First Offense by Corey Hart. Now, ordinarily, off the top of my head, like I said, I, I would have just been prepared to offer the blanket statement that no song could out 80s Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. And yet, coming in off the top rope, here is an act whose name you, you probably don't remember. You may have never known in the first place. I didn't. Um, they're called Reflex. And this song right here, I kind of have a soft spot for this one. You might too. But this song is as 80s as... Spuds McKenzie wearing spandex and sunglasses, arm wrestling Mr. T. Meanwhile, let's check in with two all-time 60s rock icons and see what they were up to in 83. Neither of them found uh, terrific success with their releases in November of that year, although one of them was on the way to bouncing back in a big way. <clears throat> I'm speaking of Paul Simon. So Paul Simon obviously had the Simon and Garfunkel stuff and then obviously had some solo success and then he had a couple of lean years and at this point he's just coming off of a wildly successful I think it was a reunion tour maybe through Europe with Art Garfunkel this is when they just done that um, celebrated concert in Central Park the biggest like literally the biggest outdoor concert of all time 500,000 people and so they go Hey, Paul, hey, Art, why don't you guys make another album together? And so fine, they decide to do that, and they go in the studio, and they start working on it, and it's coming along. And somewhere along the way, Paul Simon is having uh, trouble in his marriage. He's married to Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia. And uh, the songs are very heartfelt and painful, and he comes to the conclusion that the album, the Simon and Garfunkel album that he and Art Garfunkel have been working on collaboratively in recording is too personal to be from a band it needs to be a paul simon album and with gigantic brass balls goes over to art and informs him of the change in plans now art garfunkel is uh, has never been um thought of as an easygoing guy and i'm starting to think there's no good guys in the simon and garfunkel dysfunction and split art gets kicked out of, of, of simon and garfunkel basically paul simon goes in literally deletes destroys art garfunkel's vocals and re-records them himself and who knows if this would have been successful had it been released under the simon and garfunkel banner it was definitely not successful as a solo album although it paves the way for uh, paul simon's next album the humongously successful the comeback album of all comeback albums graceland 
And uh, I listened to this a little bit, and I can see why the title track was not a successful single. It's not a single, but I recently did a, a deep dive on um, on the Simon and Garfunkel album, Rosemary, Rosemary Sage, wait, Parsley Sage, Rosemary in Time, that's what it's called, right? I listened to that whole album a bunch of times for uh, a pod over on my I, my Patreon, and I think that this song compares favorably to the really good uh, stuff, at least the really good album tracks from Simon and Garfunkel. Check it out. This might be a hidden gem. It is Paul Simon and the title track from Hearts and Bones. On the last leg of a journey they started a long time ago The arc of affair rainbows in the high desert air mountain passes slipping into stones hearts and bones hearts and bones hearts and bones that's nice i like that maybe it was just like, you know, my sort of my way into Paul Simon was the Graceland album, which is very much a divorce album. And maybe I'm just used to embracing the sad sound of Paul Simon confronting a marriage falling apart. And so I, maybe maybe that was uh, too sad for people who were looking for another um, me and Julio down by the by the schoolyard. I don't know. Anyway, the Rolling Stones also released an album in 1983. And now, unlike Paul Simon, Paul Simon was due for a roaring comeback did the Stones ever have that? I don't think so. They did have, you know, Steel Wheels, I know, had a couple of songs that got on the radio, but does anybody really, does anybody really consider that? Like, Graceland is a classic Paul Simon album. I think the truly classic Stone stuff was already in the rear view by the time that their preceding album had been um, Tattoo You, and that had what, Start Me Up on it? I mean, that definitely had some some songs that are still in their live set to this day. I think this is really the end of the Stones contributing anything to their, like, absolute classic canon. And uh, where we find them in 83 is Keith Richards wanting to remain faithful to the blues rock roots and Mick Jagger, unsurprisingly, you know, he's dancing in the streets with David Bowie and seeing how successful David Bowie is moving his stuff into the 80s. And he wants to keep up with the Joneses. He wants to remain a big pop star. And uh, the tension between the two was real in the studio and it's real on the record. And I guess Keith Richards, it's not that he was sober at this point. It's just that he was like less fucked up at this point than he'd been for a really long time. And they said that um, Keith had just pretty much been a pile for the longest time that Mick, he had to assume leadership of the group, but he got to assume leadership of the group. There was nobody there to um, debate him on where he thought the Stones ought to go. All of a sudden, Keith Richards has somewhat come out of a decade-long stupor and has an opinion, and that caused real issues between the two that obviously continued up to and including when they're writing uh, memoirs, taking shots at each other decades later. Anyway, you can hear all that tension in the title track and the lead single. It sounds like the Stones, but it sounds like the 80s. It kind of sounds like uh, a preview of what the Escape Club are going to be doing. Remember of, of Wild Wild West fame? It's It's not terrible, but it's easy to see why it wasn't a hit either. Here are the Rolling Stones circa 1983. Lost in the jails in South America. 
late 1983, um, the tragic accident involving Randy Rhodes from Ozzy Osbourne's band is about 18 months ago. And in the ensuing year and a half, Ozzy has already cycled through a couple of guitar players. He released a live album of Black Sabbath covers with a guy named Brad Gillis. I think he had been in Night Ranger for a hot second. I guess he was poised to hire a guy named Vito Brada, whose name is well known to guitar guys, particularly around my age. Vito would later go on to great success in his own right with his band White Lion. But by uh, by November of 1983, Ozzy and Sharon have settled on a guy by the name of Jake E. Lee. And Ozzy had an amazing knack for, um, I would say his only truly great top to bottom solo album is The Blizzard of Oz, the first one with Randy Rhodes, Crazy Train and Goodbye to Romance and all of that. But after that, for a remarkably long period of time for Ozzy, and what we all know Ozzy was up to in those days, he he never made consistent albums, but he had a knack for coming up with like the one big song that could perpetuate his superstardom, perpetuate his his place at the top of the heavy metal uh, hierarchy. And, and, and this time around, the album and the single are called Bark at the Moon, on which Jakey e. Lee does to my ears. I've listened to this song a lot recently. My son has been an obsessive Aussie fan for um, and, and guitar player for a year and change now. Jakey e. Lee brings some new things to the table, but for the most part, pretty faithfully. I would, I would imagine if Randy Rhodes could have heard this stuff, he would have approved of the guitar solos in particular that Jakey e. Lee was, was bringing to the table. This is Ozzy moving into, you know, changing with the times, moving into more of um, a hair metal, headbangers ball, getting some more synths in there kind of sound. Somehow, insanely, Ozzy and Sharon with a straight face claimed when the album came out that Ozzy had written it all by himself, which I'm not even saying that's impossible because... Ozzy's not all there or because he's hammered. Ozzy can't play an instrument. It's notoriously hard to write an entire album of music when you can't play piano or guitar in the rock format. Uh, it, it obviously wasn't true. And it, it's slimy. You know, it's easy to, to pin the all the sliminess on Sharon from, you know, ev- everything throughout the years. But Ozzy can only claim to be so oblivious, I think. It seemed like there was a lot of good cop, bad cop going on where... Uh, Jakey e. Lee wrote most of the music for the album, and then Sharon just showed him a contract and said, "Sign your rights away to 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 getting money for for writing this." You know, they offered him a lump sum, a small lump sum, but you don't get credit for writing it. You don't get future royalties, and you have to lie and say you didn't write it. And if you don't sign this, we're going to kick you out of the band and just replace you and have somebody else rewrite your stuff. And you know that the the power dynamic there was. This was a guy like Jakey e. Lee. This was his shot at the big time. This is what's going to put him on the map. And unfortunately, signing that deal was the price that he paid. Meanwhile, there's this bass player guy who I'd never heard of until my son got into to Ozzy and I started doing my homework. His name is Bob Daisley, and he was the, the he was in the original Blizzard of Oz band. And it seemed like this guy would just sort of come and go. And and his knack was for writing lyrics for Ozzy, and he would write a bunch of lyrics and then he would ask for compensation and he would get fired and then a couple years later they would realize they desperately needed this guy and they'd throw him a bit of money and he'd come back and he'd write some more and then the process would repeat itself it's pretty unseemly but however they got there this is the song that perpetuated ozzy's fame in 83 and made him after michael jackson the world's 
second most popular music video werewolf. Pentagrams were everywhere you looked in the metal world in 1983. We already talked about Shout at the Devil, the, the signature album from Motley Crue earlier in the year. Just last month, we discussed the debut of King Diamond and Merciful Fate. And here in November, December 1983, we have the debut album Show No Mercy from Slayer. I don't think it's actually true, as was uh, frequently rumored, at least when I was a kid, that Slayer was an acronym for Satan Laughs as you eternally rot but nonetheless when you're talking about the the big four of thrash metal metallica slayer megadeth and anthrax there was no question that these guys were the darkest the blackest of the black and um they they, they did a quickie poorly produced debut album it didn't sound so great a lot of the members of the band don't really love it because the sound did not capture what they were going for in the slightest nonetheless it it, it got the ball rolling and it produced a couple of tracks that remained live staples of their set for the rest of their career. At the end of 1983, German metal group Accept released their fifth studio album, which produced one minor metal classic. Something interesting I've just learned about this album is you never know where you're going to find progressive politics. Certainly uh, you wouldn't expect from an early 80s German metal band, but one of the reasons that this album um, got a lot of attention and also attracted some criticism was the band's outspoken um, gay rights stance. They said that they stood medals about all the misfits and people look at gay people like they're crazy. They're just normal people trying to live their lives, damn it. Who knew? I don't know if you remember this song. I don't know if you've ever seen the music video. But if you thought Miley Cyrus looked good riding a wrecking ball around, just wait till you see except frontman Udo Dirkschneider riding one around in the music video for this song right here. The initial classic run for punk legends Misfits was very brief, but it was very glorious. And at the end of 1983, Glenn Danzig was still kind of in the fold. This is 
two months after he performed his last live show with Misfits. He's already thinking about moving on to, he had his, his uh, middle project, Sam Hain, before he formed the, you know, Danzig, the band Danzig, that would be very, very successful. And there's already tensions. It's already falling apart. He said at this point, he'd already written some songs for Sam Hain, but he wanted to keep the peace. And so he included them on the second and what would be the last proper, forget about all the stuff that happened later with that turd that later joined the proud boys actual misfits albums the only actual misfits albums have glenn glenn danzig prominently involved with them and in uh, december of 83 they released the second and final one it's a whopping 15 minutes long but it contains uh, a whole bunch of classics including one of my personal favorite songs from the band off of earth ad wolf's blood here is crap you guys and ladies i i think i just i think that song was recorded in my hometown of rutherford new jersey now i know the misfits are from nearby lodi and i always knew when i was a kid our cool record store in town had like a lot of um uh misfits not just memorabilia but keepsakes like actual you know uh, xeroxed flyers from misfit shows so i always knew that they were local and i knew that they recorded some stuff there's this it's still there right in the center of town it's called fox studios i even went up there one time i just walked in off the street to see about like hey i got like four books can i record some demos and it was a real it was a real place i i even remember having some demo tapes from uh, I this one hair metal band called Platinum, and it said recorded at Fox Studios. So to me, that was like, wow, that shitty band that sent me their four track demo for free because I asked for it. They recorded in my town. Oh my god, my town's famous. Like, shouldn't we have like a a plaque or a something? I knew the Misfits recorded some stuff there, but I didn't know what. And that's that's an absolute classic. I don't know what else Misfits recorded there, but I mean. I've been to numerous 4th of July festivals and, and, and town get-togethers where the mayor is there and we celebrate all that's great about the lovely hometown of Rutherford, New Jersey, and nobody's ever brought up the Misfits once, and frankly, we don't have a whole lot of competing history. I think we should, I think you should have a statue. There, there I said it. Maybe it can be a statue of Glenn Danzig carrying kitty litter in Lincoln Park down there in uh, downtown Rutherford. Okay, finally, this is the 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 last new music release I want to touch on before we go over to the B-side show from uh November December 83 and it's it is definitely the least. Musically, it doesn't do much for me, but culturally it does mean something and it was surprisingly successful. Do you remember uh English comedian Tracy Ullman. So before she had the Tracy Ullman show on, um, she was one of, the, I think it was one of the original shows. If not, it was darn close to it on the Fox network. She did 
comedy, sketch comedy in England, and then she had this recording career. And I remember hearing, you know, she used to be a singer. She didn't just used to be a singer. This song, I'm looking at the wiki right now, was a top 10 hit. This was number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. Nobody even remembers this song. Anyway, why am I playing this? Because it was a top 10 song. And also, because as you probably know, after recording this album, Tracy Ullman pitched and uh, and and successfully launched the Tracy Ullman show, which launched The Simpsons. So without this song, there's a pretty good chance we would never have I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you? Don't have a cowman, etc. Here she is, Tracy Ullman off the album, You Broke My Heart in 17 Places. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me here. If there's plenty more this where this came from, if you are so inclined over at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. If not, I will see you here next time. They say we're crazy, but I-